to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta. And I'm Simone. Uh, and this week, we have a listener-generated podcast, basically. So in our episode with Zolita, which if you haven't listened to, you should, um, I, Simone, questioned why menstruation wasn't celebrated in mainstream culture. And I talked about this blood offering that I made uh, and... A listener sent us an email and she was like, uh, I have an excellent idea for an episode, Native American feminism, sex, and menstruation practices. And she told us that menstruation is celebrated by many, by many Native American cultures and the introduction of shame around sex and menstruation as well as well as gendered violence, were actually critical to the settler colonial project. So in order to learn more about these practices and paradigms, we have joining us Dr. Kutcher Rising Baldy and Stephanie Lumsden. So Dr. Baldy is the author of We Are Dancing For You, Native American Femi Native Feminisms and the Revitalization of Women's Coming-of-Age Ceremonies. She is Yurok, Hoopa, and Karuk and studies menstrual taboos in settler colonial society and coming-of-age ceremonies at the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation. She's also currently a professor of Native American studies at Humboldt State. Woohoo! Green Triangle. Uh, Stephanie is an enrolled member of the Hoopa Valley Tribe in Northern California, the one that uh, Dr. Baldy studies. Uh, she received her bachelor's degree in women's studies from Portland State in 2011 and her master's in Native American studies from UC Davis in 2014. And then, because she's a super scholar, earned her second master's degree in gender studies in 2018. She's currently a PhD student at UCLA and her dissertation project addresses the relationship between the prison industrial complex and settler colonialism in California. Woo! Wow, that was, that was long but really well-written. Or well said, I Thank guess. Thank you. That's. <laughs> I have to give a big shout out to Caitlin Reed, the listener who who connected us. So she, yes, she wrote thank you to so that. much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both for being here. My first question that I'd like to know is, um, I'm not super familiar with the Hoopa, and so I would love to know a little bit of the the history of your people on this land, um, and anything you want to share about what's important there. It's a long history, you see, when you've like come from this place and you've been here since time began. But um, right, that's what, I mean. I think it, you know what's really great. I think is um, now what a lot of sex therapists, um, or at least more like progressive therapists, are doing when they do presentations. I don't know how you, um, Kutcha and Stephanie, feel about this, but they. Uh, often take a moment at the beginning of the presentation to acknowledge whoever's land they're on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think mm -hmm. that's a really nice practice mm -hmm. um, that I hope other teachers and professors and people start taking on. Yeah, it's certainly in vogue in academic circles too, right? To like acknowledge the meeting place you're in or mm -hmm. whose land you're on or who are the original caretakers. Yeah. So in LA, that's the Tatavium and the Tongva. Um, we talk about them and do work with that mm -hmm. community a lot. Um, but Kutcha and I are both um, enrolled members of the Hoopa Valley Tribe, um, and that's in Northern California near what's Humboldt now. Um, and yeah, I think, I guess what I'll say there is that that place, that valley, which was 
uh, fought hard so that our people are still there. Like we still have the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's the center of our spiritual universe. It's where all life centers around. And even people like me who grew up off the reservation in, in different urban centers, I think you'll find that these places have a way of calling you home. And it's about belonging to a place and kind of, um, but not in the romantic woo-woo way that like is depicted in movies, but more so a, a real responsibility to the other people in that land. Mm. And um, I mean, I guess we could go on to have a history lesson of dates and places <laughs> and people, but I'll, th- that's what's most important for me that people know about that place. Awesome. Thank you. What about you, Kacha? Um, You know, we're very fortunate in Hoopa. We are in our Aboriginal territory. We, um, geez, we have uh, many, many members and people that grew up in the area. But um, I think the most important thing to know about Hoopa is that we are a fully sort of functioning self-governance tribe. Um, Mm -hmm. We have our own government and programs that uh, service our peoples and We've always been in that place. And so when people ask about sort of a history of the land, we can we can say, well, you want to start in the year one because uh, we've been there forever. Um, <laughs> but we, we also are people who are very tied to our culture and uh, are fortunate enough that we have a number of ceremonies that, you know, were never disrupted by settler colonialism that we have been ongoing since the very beginning that were given to us for, by our first people. And so I think that, you know, you'll find if you come to the area that we are very culturally tied to our land space and to our history. I mean, I feel like, I feel a lot of emotionality when you are talking about that because just as I'm hearing your connection to the land that it's forever and it's like your spiritual center and just thinking about all the folks who have been displaced from a space of land or a space in in the world where they feel like that's their center and to not be able to be there and practice there is just pretty horrific. Yeah, I mean I think I, it's about grief and loss there, but yeah. I think also I don't I I think there is a real loss there. I also don't want to say that they don't make a home somewhere else. So right. I'm thinking of, you know, I have mm-hmm. friends from where what's now like Georgia and Mississippi who mm-hmm. got di- displaced to Oklahoma and they found yeah. a way to keep being who they were and mm-hmm. made a new home. So we're very lucky. We have the yeah. valley. It's a stunning place. It's where we came from. It's where our first people were from. Um, but other indigenous people who aren't so lucky as us, um, they still found a way to, like, make a way out of no way, you know, to still be who they are. Uh, You both mentioned uh, being an enrolled member. So, A, what is that? And then um, the second thing you both talked about is settler colonialism, and I was curious if you could kind of give a working definition of that for our listeners as well. Well, being being enrolled just means that, uh, according to sort of our tribal citizenship laws, we're able to be enrolled members of the tribe, uh, meaning that we're citizens of the Hoopa Valley Nation. Um, mm-hmm. it, it also means that we're likely, I mean, because this is really, it depends on how each tribe sets it up. But with Hoopa, it means that we're descendants of um, people from the valley, people of the valley, uh, that mm-hmm. we can trace, can trace our ancestry to the Hoopa Valley tribal members that um, have always been there. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's not a number of Hoopa people who might not be um, enrolled citizens of the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's for a number of different reasons. Um, but I think that it it's important for us to say that because I also have ancestry to other tribal peoples in the region. That's the Yurk and the Kaduk. And I feel a very mm-hmm. 
strong tie to those peoples as well. My family members from those areas, the peoples that I know, the ceremonies that I do, we, we, a lot of them we do together. And so I think it's important for me to be able to also claim my ancestry to the other tribes in the region and then Mm -hmm. to sort of make it clear that my citizenship is as a Hoopa Valley tribal member. And so settler colonialism is kind of the project of basically dismantling your culture and creating forced Western assimilation. Is that? I think it's really about it. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of what, uh, it's sort of what we've operated under as, um, as a country, as a nation where we're built on settler colonialism, this, this ideology of land ownership and land dispossession from the indigenous people so that a, a mm-hmm. new people, a, a new people could settle here. And their whole goal in that regard is to displace indigenous peoples, to to kill indigenous peoples, to replace them. Mm. It's not a project of learning from each other. It's not a project of sharing in space. It's a project of dispossession. Uh, and dispossession usually comes with violence. And so settler colonialism is what you know, is used to build the what becomes the United States of America, this uh, this area that says what we need to do is dispossess and and claim, and we need to do that in whatever way possible because what we want is the land and the rightful ownership of the land. Mm-hmm. And there's this like huge need to erase culture to get that land. Um, I don't know if it was on Stephanie's um, website, but I think there was a, an article that that you wrote, Stephanie, that was talking about. Um, how we need to kind of re-envision or redefine um, this happening as a form of slavery uh, was that was that on your mm-hmm. website? Yeah, it was a blog. I, it was a blog rendition of a paper I presented. Um, yeah, so I was talking about there's an actual history of enslavement of California Indians mm-hmm. and historians of a very to flat, build missions and and yeah. even before that and then missions and then later the gold rush in Northern California. Yeah. Um, that paper is contesting the language, the like depoliticized language of historians that are like indentured slaves or that Indian girls were sold under a, a tutelage of like concubinage or that kind of, it's me refuting that language. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think to, to answer that question about settler colonialism always being a violent process and it's violent because people don't give up willingly this tie to this place, you know. That people don't just sacrifice, much like you would um, other kinships in your life. You wouldn't just sacrifice that, you know, just because someone else wants to take it. So there's violence and there's also resistance. Um, and I think um, I think that's what Kutcho is getting at, too, is that this is a process rather than an event. So a lot of times uh, we're both teachers and a lot of times you'll be like, well, colonization happened in 17 you know, 69 with the first mission. And then now we're so much better. We're so much better off. Like, look at how nice we are. And instead be like, no, no, settler colonialism is an ongoing structure, um, not an event. And it's one that is, um, it's irreducible element is what Patrick Wolf says. He's kind of like the father of settler colonial studies, but the irreducible element of settler colonialism is land. So if you think about like Standing Rock or like Bears Ears or all this, like there's, it's about taking what, what we're still hanging on to and taking it and appropriating it or thieving it for the settler state. Mm. Uh, and and so I'm just really interested because part of this resistance to this act of, of thieving, as you said, is maintaining culture and language and tradition that you you and your people have had since all time. And kind of the connection that we have to you and what we're hoping to talk about more today is the the sort of reverence and appreciation and just different menstrual practices than we have uh, in like our 
white colonialist culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really intrigued by it. And you, you mentioned these ceremonies. And so I'm really curious, what is the women's coming-of-age ceremony in the Hoopa tradition? Well, I did want to say, I mean, it, in regards to settler colonialism, is that part of it is it is a, it's a heteropatriarchal structure. So mm-hmm. it really, it comes in and forwards this idea that men need to be the ones in charge, men are the most important, that women need to have only certain types of roles that, and that, that this is supposed to be normal, that this is how everybody operates. And so when mm. they come into an, an indigenous space and they look at indigenous cultures who have organized themselves very differently, I mean, you've got hundreds upon hundreds of nations throughout just the United States alone, and they're all very different from each other. But one thing that people will talk about is that they they believed in a type of gender equality and balance that wasn't being practiced in a settler colonial culture at that time. Women are treated mm-hmm. by colonists as property and um, yes. they're not given the rights, like fundamental rights they're not given. And so they come into these indigenous spaces where women are leaders, where they are doctors, where they are, can own regalia, where they can decide if they're going to get married, if they're going to get divorced, where they can own their own property, where they can pass things on through their lines so they don't need to have wow. it inherited only through men, where they have different representations of gender, where they're accepting of how people want to like live their lives. All of these things they see as they come in. And so this heteropatriarchal settler colonialism goes, something's wrong with that. And we don't like that. And one of the things that they in particular really didn't like was the fact that we celebrated women and menstruation. And we believed that menstruation was powerful. And we forwarded this idea that menstruation is not dirty or shameful, but that it was about power. And it was about being able to show the important uh, ways that women contributed to their society. And so immediately they get real skeeved out. They're kind of like, ew, gross, periods. I can't, I can't <laughs> even think about it. And they start to really target the role of women in these Native cultures because they see that if they want to take apart the culture, they have to take apart the women. And the power that they can represent with even just their menstruation. Like we're sitting on a gold mine of power with our periods and our clitorises. Um, I'm literally but. sitting on a gold mine right now. I have my diva cup in. <laughs> well, that, well, that's just the thing is, I mean, when you look at like the way that we talked about our women. So what I do in the book that I wrote is it's really about looking at uh, the Hoopa Valley tribe and our, our cultural epistemological beliefs about uh, menstruation and menstrual customs, but I do it through like the language, first of all, but also the stories that we have about women. And there's so much difference in how we understand or we want people to understand um, what menstruation is and why it is something that we should not be ashamed of to talk about and mm-hmm. why this is something that we wanted to share with everybody. But also the importance of, I think, humanizing Uh, the menstrual experience so that people will have conversations that then it won't lead to problems. So when we're talking about young girls that won't talk about the things that are happening in their own bodies, and then this leads to actual like medical issues. Well, we wanted Mm -hmm. to create a space where they could talk to each other, where they could talk to us, where they could share in what was going on so that those things wouldn't happen. And I think that the more work I did with uh, menstruation, especially in indigenous cultures, the more I realized that indigenous cultures are looking at menstruation as 
um, how do we understand that this is a very significant thing that's happening in people's lives, but we do it in a way that honors that these are things that we have to um, sort of go through once a month, right? Like, how do we honor the things that are happening in our lives instead of hiding or keeping them secret? Mm -hmm. And and I think I think a lot of what we've learned about Indigenous cultures since the 1900s has been a perspective of of white male anthropologists who were trying to understand what they were seeing, but couldn't see it. They couldn't even hear it. They couldn't even understand right. it. Um, so we get very misinformation about indigenous menstrual customs. Even to this yes. day, some of the most popular books have misinformation about indigenous menstrual cu- customs. Yeah, I think one of the most, the, obviously one of the most intense misrepresentations is this idea of like this menstrual hut and this sequestering of women uh, while they're menstruating. And so I am curious, I would love to know like if that backstory and that creation, uh, that anthropological misappropriation of what actually happens didn't exist. So let's say we're aliens and you're telling us like what the Hoopa tribe does to celebrate menstruation. How, what, what happens? Well, when a girl first menstruates, that's when she has her first menstruation. We call her a kinal dung, which means she's having her first menstruation. And at that time, we would do a celebration for her, a ceremony that helps her to understand uh, the power that she carries within her. It's it's really a time to kind of mark what adolescence is, which is this is a time of great change. And while you're changing, you need to know that you have everything you need so that you can do what you want to do with your life. And so for five, seven, or 10 days, we would actually celebrate her. But during that period of time, she's also doing things that shows how powerful she is. She's running, she's learning about herbs, she's singing, she's doing steams. She's doing things that show her that she can get through any kind of thing that gets thrown her way. Cause she's also doing it while she's fasting and, um, while she's like getting up very early in the morning, she nowadays they have no access to like electronics during this period of time, which can be very hard on them. Wow. Um, <laughs> Such fortitude. Yeah. phone for 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is trying to tell her like all those things you're going to need because adolescence, it, it's not easy and it's a lot Mm-mm. of like things that are happening. All those things you're going to need to get through that you already have. We're going to show you that you have that kind of strength inside you. And then we're going to show you people who will be there for you to get through all of that. So if you have questions, uh, she talks about lots of different things. She has talking circles of women that come to talk with her. She is able to ask advice of things. Um, We share with her certain stories that are sort of like a required part of the ceremony where we talk to her about things like violence in relationships or what it really means to have a good partner or what it means to have good nutrition. Um, And she's able to ask any questions she wants of the people that come in during this time. It just kind of gives her this sense that she has a whole community that are going to help her as she moves forward so that she doesn't feel like adolescence is on her only, that it's only a negative thing, that it's only a thing that she has to deal with. And instead, it's this is your community celebrating how important you are so that when you move forward, you know that you have all of that with you already. That's really like amazing. Tearing up over here. Yeah. Um, d- were you able to have these ceremonies yourself, each of you, or is this something that you've more discovered after your studies and are hoping to bring that some of that tradition back to your nation? 
Yeah, I mean, um, we talk about this, and that's, like, why Kutch's book, I think, is so important and why the scholarship was so sorely needed is, like, this this ceremony hadn't been practiced in so long. And so um, I didn't have this ceremony. Uh, I know none of us, like, only a couple of our peers were among the first, right? But mostly it's all of all of us were... Um, I've been participating in other people's ceremonies, but not me. And I think about this, like, really beautiful story Kutch is telling about how Hoopa people value women, young women, um, and other menstruating bodies. So And working together. Yeah, and it's, like— Supporting each other. And, like, what a great time for advice. And instead of being, like, embarrassed and isolated— Because I think about, like, my first period. No one announced to me that I was a kanafdung and made me a skirt. You know what I mean? Like, I was home by myself Mm. trying to figure out tampons. Uh, and like was really embarrassed and it was like a hide the not box very thing. romantic or spiritual right like it was more like a like really uncomfortable awkward painful kind of humiliating thing and yeah. i certainly wasn't fasting or steaming or running or being shown how strong i was or connecting right? with your community right i was sitting at home eating i think uh lucerne's like birthday cake ice cream and like <laughs> trying to figure out a tampon <laughs> that's awful and that's like a not that's not the experience I want for people who menstruate. That was so <laughs> interesting. Yeah, to mine. <laughs> See, mine is so not that. I actually got mine when I was at summer camp in the woods. So I was running and I was doing all of this stuff and I didn't stop. And then when I came back from summer camp, my whole family celebrated me and we like went out for champagne and it was like a big celebration. So that's so interesting. And and I think that that's like one of the greatest things to do. And I And I think it was almost like, I think kind of my father spearheaded it. He was like crying. He was like, we need champagne and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I think that's rare though, Simone. I think you're, I mean, we've had your mom on for our mom cast episode and she's a pretty woke woman. Um, (laughs) But I think it's more similar to like this, like you were saying, this post-colonial, not post-colonial because we're still in colonization. So Mm -hmm. this, this colonized view of women Mm -hmm. um, because mine was really similar. I remember like in a bathroom getting it by myself and freaking out because it had got on my pants and like what were people going to think and my mom didn't even know how to explain like how to put a tampon into me. Mm-hmm. Um, and Side so of the I, box. Yeah, I was like sitting there trying <laughs> to figure out how to put it in this hole that I had never had another thing in mm-hmm. and like couldn't figure it out and was just like crying on the floor by myself with my period stained pants. Oh like, my god! It's really traumatizing. It's a trauma, yeah. It's a, it's a trauma that That's you so locate in your own body. Yeah, totally. It's a bummer. I got so... so- Wow, I thought at first when I got mine, I thought my butthole was leaking, and then I realized it was very good. Um, but, but I, what I actually used a tampon before I ever got or what? What a relief! <laughs> it wasn't. That. <laughs> I was in sixth grade at summer camp. Yeah, butthole leaking would have been way worse. Um, but I remember I used I I tried a tampon before I ever got my period. Like I have this distinct memory of like walking up to my mother in the kitchen, being like mommy, guess what? She was like, what? I said, I have a tampon. (laughs) She's sweet. She goes, she goes, do you have your period? And I was like, nope. (laughs) Just excited about the product. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Like the more research you do, the more you realize things that these internalized messages, I don't know where I got them from. I do remember when I was in like the sixth grade, they all took us to sex education. And all I remember is that the teacher said to us, like, you likely will not want to use a tampon because you'll be concerned about your virginity. And you don't oh. want to, like, break your hymen because you're using a tampon. And so oh. more likely you'll lose, you'll use pads. And I, and I really, like, 
this is something I remember very clearly. I was like, oh, okay, I can't use tampons until I'm not a virgin anymore. And so it was stuff like that. Like that was my experience of menstruation. I couldn't really fathom or understand that my mother wanted to take me out to dinner and celebrate me. I couldn't understand when she told me about this dance. I couldn't understand it because in my mind, what that meant to me was this is exactly how primitive Indian people are. Like we would celebrate this really shameful thing. And I had really looked at it as like everybody would view me as a primitive Indian. And in my mind, we're like dancing around with like blood everywhere. And like I, I could only picture this really awful things that I had seen in movies because to me, that would be the only reason why you'd ever talk about it because I had been told through what I had learned in school was you just don't talk about it. Like it's very private. I remember the boys weren't allowed to be in the same class as us. Mm-hmm. The boys and girls were separated. So to me, it was like boys aren't Wait, supposed to know about Wait, when they teach you this. about menstruation? Yeah, they mm-hmm. put us into different Whoa. classes. Talk about fucking um, messaging, right? Like, like we as a society must like protect the boys from hearing about like teenage female bodies changing. Like that's mm-hmm. so And what they crazy. know, like— like studies, like they know, they know that studies say that girls, when they reach the age of puberty, their self-esteem plummets. This is across the board. Any group of people, girls' self-esteem plummets, boys stays the same or increases. Girls are the ones that have the onset of alcohol and drug abuse when they are 11, 12, and 13. They have the onset of suicide ideation when they're 11, 12, and 13. Like adolescence is a really big deal. And the way we're treating it is creating these young women whose self-esteem plummets. And then suddenly they're like, I can't, you know, do as well on my tests. I'm not going to go through school. I'm not going to feel empowered. I'm not going to speak up. I'm going to. And so we wonder, like, to me, it all comes back to this moment where we're trying, where we're telling them that they're not supposed to be celebrated. And, yeah. and we know it causes major issues for young women. Wow. I mean, I know, Stephanie, you Fuck said you that. didn't grow up on the reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, Kucha, are you describing an experience outside of the reservation? Like, I'm curious what kind of sex education happens, like, in the Hoopa reservation area now. Like, is there any sex education? Well, I think that it's like, you know, we're, it's, a, it's a public school that's on the res. So it's like a high school, elementary school. Mm-hmm. So they're also bound to sort of what, what is public school sex education at the time. But I do think that um, that now with the revitalization of our flower dance, you have a lot more people that are talking about young girls and menstruation outside of school in a very positive way. So when I started my period, I was 12 and my mom made me call my dad on the phone and I couldn't understand why. And I was all embarrassed and he didn't know what to say. His response was kind of like, um, okay, like, good for you. Like, I don't know, right? And now, you know, flash forward however many years later, I'm not going to say because nobody needs to know how old I am. But anyway, um, and now he has, like, young girls that come to my parents' house when they are when they want to flower dance and they'll sit down and he'll say, why are you here? And they'll go, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to, I got my period. And he'll say, congratulations, you get to have a flower dance. That's so exciting. And... He gets oh, really excited that. for them. And and that's the difference. It's just, I mean, you have all of these like older men that get really excited for their granddaughters that are like sharing with them how important and powerful it is. You get these young men that are like, you get to have a flower dance. That's what's going to happen for you. And this is a really big moment. And so it has changed the conversation, especially for young women. Now they get really excited 
uh, about this period of time because they're like, this means I get to have a flower dance. This means I get to have people come and dance and sing for me. This means people are going to celebrate me. And that's sort of their first response to what's happening. I really like the name too, flower dance. (laughs) In English. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. In English. (laughs) Yeah. This episode is sponsored in part by Dipsy. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering a 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash S&S. Remember, the more you support our sponsors, the more it supports us. Also, we love and personally use all of the products from our sponsors. Dipsy is an awesome audio app full of short, sexy stories and guided sessions designed to turn you on. Great to listen to solo or with a partner, or multiple partners. Whatever your fantasy, Dipsy probably has a story for you. If you're like many of us and need or want a little audio stimulation to open yourself up, then check out Dipsy right now. They have three new stories each week. Again, that's a 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash S&S, D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash S-A-N-D-S, dipsystories.com slash S&S. Enjoy. You mentioned in your article that I read that we'll post in the show notes that uh, Bettelheim's theory that men are jealous of women's menstruation, which is why they instilled menstrual taboos. Mm -hmm. And so in hearing you talk Mm -hmm. about um, 12-year-old girls getting to be celebrated and excited, I'm thinking about my own culture that I was brought up in, which is, you know, at 12 and 13, girls and boys have— bat and bar mitzvahs. I'm Jewish. And I, I, and I used to, when we, when, I, when we moved when I was younger, we used to be part of a liberal community and then we went to a more conservative one because we didn't find a liberal one where we lived after we moved. And girls didn't really have bat mitzvahs in that community. Only boys were allowed to. And that's actually quite typical of like more conservative Judaism. And there's this kind of like this revitalization of like celebrating like the 12-year-old girl through her bat mitzvah, but I really think that probably what it actually is is celebrating her period and her menstruation. I don't know. Is that crazy? I don't I think, think so. it's crazy. I, mean, I, don't, I, I don't think any of it's. I mean, I look what they the anthropologists are not willing to say a lot of things about um, like indigenous cultures that are in common because we're so different from each other. But they will say that. In the United States, especially, every single tribe had some kind of women's ceremony. And those ceremonies were usually around the onset of menstruation. So it's like a very significant period of time. And what I always say is like indigenous peoples, we've just been developmental psychologists since year one. Like we really looked Mm. at, is this like a, is this a significant time for people? Yes. Do we need to do something for it? Yes. Will that help us to create stronger human beings? Yes. And so they create this whole process of what you're supposed to do if you're a person going through adolescence. Like we should all be doing things at this period of time. Uh, and this is what they did. And I think that it's significant that now when you look at the process of adolescence, when you're looking at like adolescent studies, what they're constantly saying is what you need is you need this kind of experience and all of those things you can actually find in this ceremony. You need people that will talk to you. You need positive representations of what puberty can look like. You need to know that you have uh, the physicality to handle this. You need to know what to do if something comes up. All those things are things that are addressed in these ceremonies. So I think these older ceremonies that come out of cultures are trying to do that, having 
having seen that adolescence is a significant time in which we need to do something in order to help people into the next phase of their life. Oh, I fucking love it. Going on a sidebar, I think um, the things that we're taught about Native cultures in general in school are very limited. And obviously, like you said, probably written by like old white men. <laughs> um, so I find hmm. myself struggling sometimes in terms of how to ask um, even you as my guests or just like other Native friends that I have, how to ask them about their cultures in a way that like honors um their life and their experience. I know you can't speak for all Native nations and Indigenous peoples <laughs> in the world, um, but I wonder if you can, I don't know, help us figure out how to be less ignorant about it. What are the best resources? How can we ask these questions in a respectful way to actually hear and understand your experiences? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think, first of all, I've, I think making relationships with people in your life is um, usually a good entryway to learning about people who are different from you and learning about not just like difference in this kind of liberal multicultural like bullshit kind of like it's a small world kind of business, but mm -hmm. rather like we're all political bodies that exist in this time and place as a result of long histories and, you know, contemporary political tensions. And so I think... Um, looking to educate yourself, but not just so that you can learn and be like a good liberal person, but rather so you can mm. kind of start to explain um, what it is that this this all means to you or like where where you should locate your um, your like political solidarities and interests. So and not I, just solidarity, but but action. Yeah. And support. Yeah. At that's, least that's in my opinion. Absolutely. I think that's um, where I'm going is like so when people, because I grew up in a white suburb of a white city in a white state, and um, I think being singled out as being different because of jewelry or because because um, I had the misfortune of being eight when Pocahontas came out or whatever. Oh, uh, like, wow. Like a lot of that was really um, awful and really isolating, and it was just people wanting to take something from me so that they could say something about themselves. That's a very different way to come at someone versus like, hey, like, I see you, and I, I don't feel like I know anything about that, um, about about you, about your life, and I think that's for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. So I think just addressing the people in your life as, like, in in such a way as to, yeah, like you as said, a, As honor, a human being yeah, you want to get to know. To kind of, like, honor their dignity. Also, we live in this age yeah. where much information is accessible, right? It, it, it's very easy to do a quick... Google search of like whose land am I on? Yeah. And who are the people? Mm -hmm. What are their contemporary political struggles? And in LA, you'll very quickly find the Tongva and how they fight for access to their ceremonial sites. And they fight with the city about digging up their graves because the city's expanding so rapidly. And you'll find that all of the water in LA is actually stolen water from up north and that those people mm -hmm. are seeing their lakes and fish die. And you know what I mean? You start to see yourself in a political landscape. So. I don't prefer people to come at me and be like, when can I join your ceremony? And isn't it true that all Indians did all this? And like that kind of ignorance mm -hmm. that uh, turns our political identity into a lifestyle. Yeah. Not interested in that. Um, well, and it also puts the onus on you to teach us how we've oppressed you. Right. <laughs> Almost instead of us being like, I noticed that this is a thing. How can I do the research myself and change that ignorance and be more of an activist and an ally as opposed to like, tell me what to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, mm -hmm. that would require a large speaker fee. 
Um, so I, I think looking for political answers. Well, we're very grateful for the time you're taking right now. Yeah, seriously. That's good fun. But uh, it's different than when I'm trying to like get half and half at the store and someone stops me to ask about Native American uh, history. Like, that's <laughs> Wait, actually. Is that a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. Really? Yeah. What? Wh- like, wow. what do they say? Like, where are you from? What's up? You must be Indian. But like, or... where are you really from? Right. <laughs> or like, tell me about that. Where are you originally that. from? Yeah, these sorts of like, what I think are well-meaning, um, but often like, well-meaning things are often cloaked in white supremacy. So I think thinking yeah. about those kinds of everyday um, violences and instead to kind of commit yourself mm-hmm. to the work of it. Because it's a lot of work to be Indian. It's not all woo-woos and good feels. It's actually a lot of work. It's really expensive. It's really inconvenient. It requires a lot of travel and responsibility to others. Can you talk more about that? In well, terms I mean, of, I'm like, sure. what's work? Yeah, I'm sure Kacha can, too. Just the organization of um, the uh, flower dance, even. Like, you think logistically bringing together hundreds of people in a community, many of whom don't have resources. And just as a participant mm-hmm. and, a, and a witness to all of that, I mean, I have to get myself to the valley. So that's, like, 16 hours. Or wait, that's, like, 12 hours from here. Um, you have to pay the expense. I know Katja's done this so much because she's lived in different places during her schooling and her career and has had to get home every summer. You know, that's like one less family vacation and one more just your whole trip is just going home. And um, if anything fun comes up, a friend's getting married or there's a there's some kind of conference in uh, September, you can't go because that's when our that's when our world renewal ceremonies are. Or mm. you know, it's incredibly inconvenient. And then having to explain all those things to people is inconvenient too. And then the expense of travel and right and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, burden. Yeah, and like and then the families, the dance it, families, to put it on and all. It's expensive. It, yeah, it takes about a year or more to prepare for the ceremony. It's something that a lot of people don't think about. It, we have to go and gather all these materials that only grow during certain periods of time. Mm-hmm. We have to put all these things together that we can only put together. I mean, we have to all have jobs because it's we can't just be I wish we could be gathering and making things <laughs> every day, but you know, we all have jobs that we do. And then after our job is over, we have another thing we have to do to get ready um, between cracking and cleaning and putting together all the acorns, the skirts, the dresses, the gifts that we're going to give, gathering all of the herbs that we need, like all of that. It's year-round, and it's on a certain time scale, so we have to think about all that all the time. And I think it does ground you. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily, I mean, I don't think of that as, as a burden, but I, I do know that it means that I'm doing more work, I think, than people kind of see, because what they see is the ceremony part. Mm-hmm. But then you're doing more work than that. Mm-hmm. There's so much that goes into it that for at least it. a year, if not more. Yeah, not glamorous and work either. Is- <laughs> Sorry, and this is the this is the flower ceremony. So, do you just do one um, a year, or does each girl get her own? Each girl gets her own. Where we do, I would say it depends. I mean, that because we're doing them in a number of different tribal nations up here, but we can do anywhere from you know five to six per summer, and they're usually over. The, they don't have to be over the summers, but they usually happen during the summer months because that's when people are not in school, and so it's easier for people mm-hmm. to get things scheduled. Um, they usually happen over the weekend, but that's it does they don't have to happen over the weekend, but that's when people can come. Um, and also we have to do one one night that's all night long, and it tends to be that that's easier to do it on the weekend because then people have Sunday to like uh, come back from staying up all night. So 
I mean, there's all these kinds of things that we've had to think about. We have a number of other ceremonies that we still do, and those are always scheduled too, usually over the summer months. And so really between May and about October um, is ceremony time and people are just, you know, they're always like, we're just busy. We're just off the grid. We're, you know, yeah. Uh, so that's really how we spend a lot of our time. And a lot of it for other people who don't live near here, it's traveling, it's driving, it's finding a place to stay. It's making sure that you're there. It's uh, being in town and running errands. I mean, it's all kinds mm-hmm. of things that go into yeah. what we're doing. I'm mm-hmm. really curious about after, after the ceremony. So you have this so, so when you first get your period, there's this beautiful, wonderful welcoming ceremony. But I'm curious about what sort of uh, practices the Hoopa tribe has for just uh, for like as you're menstruating throughout your life. Well, you know, I don't, I, I can't speak for who actually continues kind of what we would call like our our older practices of menstrual customs. I do think that one of the biggest things, like you had said, that people kind of get in their heads is this idea of the menstrual hut. Uh, that's something that a lot of anthropologists really like to talk about. Um, they, they usually write about it with every culture. They've actually, they've tried to say that the that that a taboo against menstruation, this idea that something's wrong with it or that you know it can like do bad things, is is universal. Most anthropological theories say every culture in every single place, everywhere, and any time has said that menstru that menstruation is kind of gross, uh, like new huh. gross. Um, but that's not true. Not if you true. do any, if you do any significant work within those cultures, what you start to realize, and what most of the newer anthropological theories in which they're actually doing sort of culturally based work say is that there actually is no menstrual taboo. That that was completely and wholly created by um, anthropologists coming out of like the Western sort of tradition of looking at wow. things. Uh, the word taboo is really a fascinating sort of discussion about what happens with like wording because taboo is actually an indigenous Polynesian word. And what it means is to make something holy or sacrosanct. And so Mm -hmm. when, when they said in their culture, when they said, what is that woman? And they said, oh, she's taboo. um, It actually meant she was holy at that time. Like she was extra holy, but then the anthropological people started to use it as a negative, like to be taboo is to be something gross or that, is against that we can't sort of like touch it or pay attention to it, but really it means to be extra holy, to be holy or sacrosanct within your culture. Um, That's wild. I never knew that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's little things like that where you start to see how, how we have like uh, universalized these theories about menstruation that really come from men who are very like, really what it is is they're just like, ew, gross periods Um, with, uh, with Hoopa people. We had what anthropologists call a menstrual hut, but I always say if I do one thing in my research, I really hope mm-hmm. that I will take the term menstrual hut out of everybody's uh, like way of speaking. I hope they never use that term anymore because there is no such thing as a menstrual hut. You'll, you won't go into an indigenous culture and ask them, what's your word for menstrual hut? They don't have one. There's no like word that means menstrual hut. In Hoopa, we called our women's house the Minch, which is defined as a small or familiar house that is dear to you. Um, that's not a menstrual hut. That is no. a small, familiar house that is that's dear to you. That's a place to go and feel safe. Yes. And the or thing feel, that is... In- or just relax or... or oh, I'm so and mad. The, and the, <laughs> the thing that they say is like... Um, 
when you look at it, uh, it's not, it's also not just a place that women went when they were menstruating. Uh, we went there after we had a baby for 10 days. We went there if we had a miscarriage. We went there, like, there's all kinds of reasons why a woman would choose to go into the women's house. And one of the reasons why we had our babies there is because we believed it was the most powerful place in the valley because it was where mm. all the most powerful women were. And so you would want your baby there in its first 10 days of life to make sure that everything was going to be okay and that the baby would be powerful. If we were afraid of it, if we were afraid of blood, if we were if we thought women were taboo, we wouldn't let our babies go there. Um, we wouldn't yeah. let our women who had just miscarried go there, right? So there's all these kinds of discussions about the reverence of the place. Uh, we didn't have terminology in our language that's, that spoke about menstruating women in negative ways. So when a woman's menstruating, we say timname, which means at the lucky spot she bathes. Um, yeah. So when a woman is menstruating, she would bathe at one of the seven sacred bathing spots along the river because we believe that she was so powerful and so lucky that she would be able to bring that luck to the water, to the land, to the people. And so they would bathe in these spots to bring that luck there. And then if somebody wanted to be extra lucky, if a man was like, I need to be extra lucky because I'm going hunting, he would also bathe in those same spots because that's where you get the most luck. And so to us, wow. it was tying women to luck and power. It was giving us extra luck and power. Um, we also had another house uh, called the Takiwa, which is the sweat house. That's primarily where men lived. And the important thing about that is that you would have young boys and men living in this house. It's, it's a sweat house. It's where they also did lots of prayers. It's also where they brought in a lot of power. But it also is like literally the place that we sent people when they were dirty and needed to be cleaned. And yet you don't see people writing <laughs> the about men live. the men's house. <laughs> Right. But you don't you don't oh see the people God. writing about the men's house as the dirty place or the taboo place, even though that uh, is the place we would send writing? dirty people. <laughs> exactly. And so when when, when, it, when there was one Fuck that oh my God. <laughs> there was like one anthropologist who wrote about the two houses. And what he said was there's like the women's house where they send the women because they're like afraid of them and they're dirty and they think we can like kill crops and stuff. Which is not true, but this is what he's saying. I've tried. And then he's like, and then there's, <laughs> Hasn't he's worked. like, there's this, men, he, he's like, there's this men's house. And it's kind of like, like an elk's lodge, like a men's clubhouse. And so you see how different it's they talk about right. these two spaces. But we then grow up, I mean, not just we as an indigenous peoples, but everybody internalizes this idea that this must be true. And so even to this day, people will talk about menstrual huts as these very negative spaces as this way of, of, of making women taboo, of sending them away, of isolating them, because that is what they say indigenous cultures do, and that we should be so grateful that we have got, grown up past this primitive status because we ha now yeah. don't do that to women. Mm -hmm. um, but in reality, that was never the case. It was never what was going on within that culture. Because that is what it sounds like, like when you talk about, when I hear the word menstrual hut, I think of like, people being sequestered away because they're whatever they're doing is bad or it's no one else wants to see that or something mm, it's a pollution yeah exactly so instead yeah, you're pollution. saying it's like a you know a, a spiritual time and a place to to feel safe and to have that experience with the community and yeah. with support yeah, yeah i don't know i don't know if either of you are familiar with this i um like to go to like small transformational style festivals um and there's there's often a red tent space 
at these sort of events, um, which I was initially kind of caught off guard by. Kind of, it was playing into my perceptions of like this shame menstrual hut thing. Um, it was actually this like Jewish, it was called Passover in the desert and um, it was just a bunch of Jews in the desert. And um, <laughs> we had this red tent, which was like usual for women only. And it was like, and it was like, if you are on your cycle, like you can come to the tent and just lie in the tent and just be there. And if you're having cramps, like you can, other women will be there and they can rub your belly. And it's just a place to go and just be and chill out. It's not like a, I have to go. And it's not that men don't go there because it's a dirty place. It's men don't go there because it's not their space. Mm-hmm. And this is our space for us. Like while we are experiencing this very regular thing. Mm-hmm. In, 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 actually- I know, Katja, you've, you've said that we talk about not bleeding as the norm. And so when you are bleeding, like that's the bad thing. And so kind of reframing that to say like, no, bleeding is normal and is the norm and for, you know, 40 years of your life. Um, and that's the special time. I don't know. I love that. I, I think it's also important to point out because a lot of people, when I go talk, they're like, but I mean, it's still, it's still oppressive or something's wrong with it because they're making you go into this place. But the thing about, uh, especially in Hoopa, but I know about ind- other indigenous cultures, is it was always a choice. Women didn't have to go and do the ceremony that comes along with uh, menstruating. They could do a ceremony in Hoopa that that said, I don't want to go into the women's house. I'm, this is not a time I can take off right now. And, in, and but, I don't, but I also don't want to, to not pay respect to what is happening in my body. So what I'm going to do is this ceremony that says, I understand what's going on, but I'm not going to go do the full ceremony that needs that usually happens when I'm menstruating. And they would do that ceremony, and then we'd go, "Okay, you're fine now," because they have autonomy and choice about what they really want to participate in. And so it wasn't about the blood necessarily, because obviously a woman could still be bleeding if she was had made the choice not to go in there. It was really like this is a time in which you could access parts of yourself and the spiritual world that you might not be able to. Otherwise, you are extra powerful and lucky. We want to give you the space to do that. But if you don't want to, you just do this other ceremony, then you don't have to do that, and you go about your day. So there's a lot of choice that goes into that also. Mm -hmm. There's the total sidebar question. Um, As I'm listening, though, I I know that we're talking about, like, male, female, gender stuff. Um, I think one of the only things that... I was taught in sex therapy about native culture, which is not enough. Um, I wish there were more classes. Like we literally have like a, one class on like different cultures and how to talk about that in therapy, which is crazy to me. Um, <laughs> oh my God. One of the only things that um, we're really taught is like a, a totally, I think, white created word, which is like two spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I am curious if there are expressions of third or other genders in Hoopa culture, or just if you have any um, knowledge about that, I would love to to know more because I've always been interested. And I think it's always been a um, an area that like sex therapists will often say like, look, other cultures celebrate third genders or diverse genders or like, you know, non-patriarchal like gender setups. So I, I would love to to hear your experience with that. And if it, if it comes up in Hoopa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Kutcha has probably more to say about this. What I always like to point to, because I teach like intro to gender studies and stuff in my uh, in my PhD program as part of my like TA hustle. But um, yeah. 
But people will yeah. ask because what they know about Indians, you're right, is kind of like this romantic, like, and actually it's kind of screwed up. You'll watch these documentaries that are about like LGBT folks and then they'll be like, well, look at indigenous cultures. They had other genders, therefore it must be natural. And again, it's kind of like a fucked up thing to do to point to Indians and be like, see these pure people, these primitive people without our modern society, they practice these genders and like pointing to Native people as an example of mm. of like, see, in the wild, it happens. Like that to me is so violent and so oh such a problem. And and I think Thank a lot of— Thank you for telling me that because I never thought of it that way. And I can so see and understand that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like it comes from such a well-meaning place. And you're not actually—it's not like it's wrong. Like there are all these other gender expressions, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth gendered positions— in many different Native communities, cultures. Um, but yeah, to use it as like proof of your own legitimacy as a queer-bodied person, I think that's probably not okay. Um, but I like to point mm. to my students to um, to language. And so in Hoopa, there's no gender pronoun. It's they. they. You would say he is handsome the same way you would say she is beautiful. You would say they are beautiful, right? Like they, yeah. there's not he or she and... Um, and then, like, even the word for woman, you know, Tsamaslan is, like, to, uh, who wears the skirt. And it's, like, it's nothing to do with vaginas or uteruses or penises or whatever. It's everything to do with your role and kind of who you belong to and what work you need to do. Not to be too, like, materialist in that, but it's, like, what's your is role here? Is there fluidity here? between it then? Are you allowed to pick a role? This goes beyond my expertise. My, my instinct is yes, but maybe Kaja can add on to that. You know, I think I think that there's several expressions of gender that speak to the fact that we were a very complex society that was trying to look at um, both like philosophical, psychological, cultural approaches to the many expressions of people. I think we were really concerned with peoplehood more than I would say gendering what that person is mm -hmm. or isn't. Um, and mm. so you get these many examples of, uh, and what we're going off of is like our stories. And in a lot of our stories, um, we have people that are expressing all different kinds of sexuality, all different kinds of gender, all different kinds of roles. And you get these examples of like, um, in, in some of our cultures where you would have somebody who was born male, but would, but would very much take on the role that people would identify as being like with women, right? So they would... Uh, mostly do what a lot of the women were doing. And yet we treated them as their own type of gender expression and saying, you have a different role that you're taking on. So now we need to like help you to be the strongest person that you can be. And that might mean that you become a medicine person. That might mean that there's something else that you're being called to. And so how do we help you with that? And so we have a number of people who now, when people write about them, like when anthropologists would write their story, they'd be like, well, they were, they're a man who's living as a woman. It was actually much more, much more complex than that. They were born male, but they are living as a medicine person who had been identified because of the way in which they were living their life as a young person uh, to sort of cross these kind of gender boundaries in multiple different ways. Um, so I think it was much more like a complex idea of what that looks like and what that means. Um, I think a lot of it was also tied around menstruation. And so if you were a person who was menstruating, uh, then we would definitely want to do some kind of ceremony for you to help you with that. I don't know if we would call that womanhood or if we would mm. call that 
going through this period of time in which you're menstruating and you're going into adolescence and we want to help you be the strongest person that you can be. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had a number of people like that they talk about who, uh, well, the anthropologists are like, the reason why this man wants to live as a woman is because he wants to be a medicine person. But you can be a medicine person if you were a man. But it's that he had been called to something else. There's something else that he's doing in terms of his understanding of the world. And so we want to support that. I think that most of our our things were concerned with our personhood. Like, how are we going to be good people? Mm-hmm. I do think mm-hmm. people changed. I think people went like fluidly between things. I also know that there was a period, there was a period in which you as like a woman, so you could be living as a woman your whole life, but at a certain point, they would actually start like um, not gendering you in their conversations because they had believed you had moved up to this elder status, which was a little bit different sometimes. Um And so you would be asked to do different roles than other people because you're in this sort of like different status than you were when you were like a mother or when you were like a grandmother or that sort of thing. So there was all kinds of like complex ways that we're that we're looking at this. I do think that those kinds of complex ways of understanding gender were also very targeted by colonialism. I mean, we were we had policies by the federal government passed that were like, if you're not in a marriage between a man and a woman, you can't inherit property. You can't um, you can't form a tribe if you don't have people getting married and having kids legally, then they can't actually be part of the like we had all these policies that come down to tell us that we can't do that anymore. And now what you're going what you see is that all of that internalized colonialism has has made it very hard to have that conversation about what gender could or could not look like uh, in our Mm -hmm. cultures. Yeah, I wish wow. I was less shocked by all of this. Yeah, <laughs> like I, you know, I, I, I would like to be in a space where I hear this and I'm like, yes, that is happening, as opposed to like, wow, I can't believe that's a thing, <laughs> and wanting to know more about this. I'm, I'm so grateful um, for you two coming on and and helping us learn a little more about about this. And um, how can people find out even more about what you're doing and the awesome work? We want people to be able to, you know, contact you and read the works that you're putting out there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's hard not to find Katja online. Um, so, like, her, she's doing her big book tour. And as I swear, I text her and I was like, oh, are you going to be through L.A.? And she's like, yeah, right after Michigan, right after New Orleans, right after wherever. So, Wow, congratulations. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I'm going to brag on her for a minute just as a friend and as a colleague and tribal member and someone who's really thrilled to see how well this book is doing. It's only been out, like, what, six months? Not even. June? And uh, yeah. and it's doing really well. And um, there's actually a magazine, a News from Native California. It's a small publication, but it's like our magazine. Um, and uh, a professor and colleague of ours wrote a book review of Kutch's book. So if you want like the quick and dirty, you can go on their website and kind of get the 500 word. Sometimes we like quick and dirty, right. but I would encourage you to buy this book. I love quick and dirty. <laughs> yeah, you have to you have to have a good mix of those things, I think. Um, there's that. The book's everywhere. It's really easy to find. Um, there's the Native Women's Collective, which she's the executive director of, and uh, I'm on the board. Um, we do lots of like workshops, lots of um, and lots of vending of pretty things. Uh, catch us on Twitter and Instagram and all the stuff like all of us are now. Um, and her website, which has her syllabi and everything that are so useful. So if you think about as a as for me as a teacher, like had to have a resource would be like this is how I would talk about uh, what's one of the classes a class I would never teach like land resource management. She's teaching one of those. It's like indigenous land resource management. 
And it's just really creative and, and really thoughtful. So there's all that. We are both academics as well. We do the talks, American Studies, Native, uh, what's not Native, National Women's Studies Association and Native American Indigenous Studies Association, all that stuff. The academic grind. Awesome. Wow. Amazing. And for listeners who are wondering, Kacha is spelled C-U-T-C-H-A. I wanted to brag for Stephanie really quickly because um, we didn't get to some of the some of the work that Stephanie does. Um, and I know you do a lot of work around um, indigenous peoples and women in the prison system. Mm-hmm. Um, so how can people find out more about that? I know we didn't focus on it today, but it sounds really awesome. And I'm yeah glad that you're doing that. Yeah, thanks. Um, I do actually some of what I do right now I'm working on as a member of the Native Women's Collective is around Kutch's book, and it's kind of like a buy a book, donate a book, or buy a book for donation, and our goal um, is to get, donate one of Kutch's books to all the correctional facilities, rehab facilities, and American Indian youth facilities in California, so we're trying to center those most marginalized in our communities um, and give them access to this really, this really beautiful narrative, a lot of what we've talked about today, about cultural resilience and um, revitalization and and looking to our futures as Indigenous people. Uh, some of the work I do right now, I'm, I'd like to say I'm a really proud member of CCWP, which is the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. Um, it's uh, been active in the Bay for a long time, but we did an L.A. chapter almost two years ago, about two years ago, is when our team really started growing, and we do regular prison visits to CIW in the wake of um, this this crisis of uh, suicides at in Chino at this mm. women's facility. Um, there's also, you, so you can go to ccwp.org and find out about our local campaigns. I was actually coming here from a campaign, a town hall meeting for Drop LWAP, Ending Life Without Parole. And a badass shirt that says Merciless Feminist Savages. <laughs> it's my uniform. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you can also follow <sighs> at Merciless Feminist Savages on Instagram. We sell our shirts and stuff. <laughs> Lots of hustles. Do it right now. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) As always, if you want to keep up to date with what we're doing, uh, you can follow us on the internet. Uh, On Instagram, we're Sluts and Scholars. On Twitter, we're Sluts Scholars. And you (laughs) can email us just like another listener did uh, with ideas and questions and raves and rants at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this episode and enjoy listening to us in general, please leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever you're getting our podcast because those really help. 